typical love story about Ruth, the, the uh, Moabite woman, uh, who with Naomi experienced uh, a tremendous hardship. Uh, it's appropriate that we look at this, uh, particularly on Mother's Day, a mother who lost not only her husband, but both of her sons, her only children. And we saw in Naomi a woman who endured great loss, great poverty, vulnerability, shame, overwhelming heartbreak. But God, in his grace, gave her a daughter-in-law. There we go. Try this one. So Ruth, Ruth was given to Naomi, and uh, her devoted love, her risk-taking faith, forever changed the course not only of their lives, but through them change the course of the entire world. So here's a quick catch-up before we enter this final climactic scene in chapter 4. Scene 1 opens with a broken and embittered Naomi with her Moabite daughter-in-law Ruth. Now the Moabites were a people that actually were an ancestry of uh, at a lot and his incestuous relationship with his daughters. Uh, Moab was a, a nation that worshipped uh, the false god of Chemosh, which actually demanded child sacrifice. They had cult prostitution, and they were historic enemies of Israel. But here Ruth was ready to leave all of that, and she bound herself to Naomi. She bound herself to Naomi's people, and bound herself to Naomi's God, and they returned together to Bethlehem during the beginning of a harvest season. And so then scene two, we find aging Naomi sends out the young, youthful Ruth to glean in the harvest fields. Now, gleaning was what God provided for the poor in the land of Israel so that those who were impoverished could provide for themselves. Uh, it was a charge and a command that those who owned fields were not to uh, harvest the edges of those fields, but were to allow those to be places where those who found themselves in, in impoverished conditions uh, could, and who were able to, to work to provide for themselves. It was God's welfare system. And so here we find that Ruth is going out in a particular field, and it happens to be the field of Boaz, who was a relative of her former father-in-law, Elimelech. And here Boaz uh, kind of finds out about her and asks his workers, whose young woman is this? Check her out. <laughs> and so they tell her all about Ruth, how she left you know, her family, her land, and her devotion to Naomi coming to a strange land, a foreign land, and that she's been working from sunup all till now with only a little break. And so he was very impressed with her character, her work ethic. And uh, so he met her and said, uh, don't go to anybody else's field. I've told my men not to touch you, to protect you. And then over lunch, apparently, was kind of the first date and uh, he asks her to come, and he says, come here and eat 
eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. Very romantic first date. Ruth goes home to Naomi with about a month's worth of, of barley. I mean, it was like 22 liters, which was like unbelievable for one day's worth of work. But of course, she got some help from Boaz. And so now hope is starting to spring. A relationship begins to bud. Ruth stays working in Boaz's field. Naomi begins to plot a preferable future. Uh, for Boaz is a kinsman redeemer. We'll hear more about that. He's a candidate, basically. He is a really good candidate to redeem the mess that they found themselves in. Chapter 3, scene 3. Naomi coaches Ruth to make her intentions known to Boaz, who apparently was a significantly older man, and he did not presume that Ruth would want him as her husband. Well, he miscalculated. Uh, he was a humble, uh, he's a real gentleman. And so Ruth is coached to clean herself up, put on the best clothes, anoint herself with perfume, and go down to the threshing floor where the harvest party is and to watch Boaz. She's kind of under cloak. He doesn't really see her at this time. And uh, to watch where he lays down after he's been full and happy of the party. And, uh, and so she tells her to lay down at his feet and uh, to uncover his feet. Now, if you're a parent here, this is not good counsel for any of your daughters. Do not coach your daughters to do this unless it's 1,000 B.C. and you are a widow Moabitess in Bethlehem. So Boaz's feet got cold, and he wakes up in the few hours later, and he is shocked to find that there's this young woman at his feet. And Ruth immediately says, it's okay, I'm Ruth, your servant. And she says, spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. In other words, she says, be my husband, marry me, have my babies. <laughs> now, Boaz is rather floored and impressed by her bold faith, her all-risky proposition, and expressed his happy willingness to marry her, to make good on her offer. But there was one issue. There was this other eligible bachelor redeemer that had the rights to that relationship first, and he must address that before he can act on that request. And so Boaz, he sends Naomi, uh, sends Ruth home with a mother load of barley, basically they estimated about 90 pounds, which she must have been a really strong lady. It was really uh, like a large engagement ring to make sure that Naomi knew that he was not a player. He was serious about this relationship. And so Naomi tells Ruth to wait and to see how this turns out because she said the man will not rest until this matter is settled today. Now, I don't know how much sleep either one of them got that night. Uh, 
she's laying at his feet. He's trying to sleep. I wonder what kind of pillow talk there was that night. I think we call this sleepless in Bethlehem. Well, this brings us to chapter 4. Chapter 4. Now, Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there, and behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down, and he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down, and he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of, of, of my people. If you, will, if you will redeem it, redeem it. But if not, if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of the dead in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging to confirm a transaction that one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other, and this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Chilion and Malon, and also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead of his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place, you are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrath and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by, his, by this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. He went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid it on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. And he was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Abinadab. Abinadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed, Father Jesse, and Jesse, Father David. It's the word of the Lord. Well, sometimes, sometimes we find it hard to hope that things could get better. Uh, many of us are so used to getting bad news 
that we won't allow ourselves to hope for good news. And sometimes we create a self-protective barrier. We brace ourselves against the next hard thing that we know is going to come. Some time ago, I found myself in this kind of feeling, this sense, uh, when I got a particular letter in my mailbox. And I just had this haunting sense that it was going to be bad news. And so I asked God, Lord, help give me strength as I opened this letter to receive whatever it says. And as I opened it, it was a check of money. And I felt rather stupid. But I started to realize uh, that for many of us, our hearts tell us not to get our hopes up. Uh, we've been disappointed so many times. You know, Naomi certainly felt this way a lot. I am sure that during those 10 years that she was in Moab, she, was, uh, she experienced so many losses. She lost her husband, her two sons. She's struggling to survive in poverty. Naomi had to fight bitterness, she had to fight despair, and she did. She did with the help of Ruth and with the help of her God. She fought. And the book of Ruth is really a book about two women, two very strong women, a mother and a mother-to-be, in, who in faith gripped the God of promise and hope in the face of overwhelming loss and experienced what the gospel promises that weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. And so the good news that we find shouting to us out of this interlude of love in the book of Ruth is that death and destruction do not have the final word. That the gospel of joy will prevail in God's kingdom. The gospel of God's grace will win over all our losses. And so we capture this movement of God's prevailing grace through the key characters in Ruth. We see it in the resolution of Boaz. We see it in the restoration of Naomi. And we see it in the respect of Ruth. You know, Boaz was determined to do business after this sleepless night. You know, he wasn't going to get any rest. He hadn't had any rest. He goes directly uh, to uh, the courthouse so as soon as the doors open, which is basically the gate of the city. At the gate of the city, uh, there were these rooms, and the elders would converge there. And that's where official business was done. So if you had to get a marriage license or something, this is where you or a deed for your property. This is where those transactions all occur. And so Boaz, he goes there, and he... He sits down, he has the elders sit down, he finds this particular agent, this redeemer, he is not given a name, and he asks him to sit down, and he, he approaches him about Naomi, who's come back from, from Moab, and she has this parcel of land that belongs to Limelech, and, and you're the first agent who has the cap capacity to be the redeemer. And so if he says, if you redeem it, redeem it, and uh, after he hears that first proposition, he says, okay, I'll redeem it. He thought this property would increase his, uh, his wealth, and it seemed to make good sense. And then Boaz then tells him, well, the day you buy that field from Naomi, uh, you also acquire uh, Ruth, the Moabite woman, to be your wife. 
And so, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead as an inheritance, well, he said, there's just no way. He said, this is going to impair, this is going to damage my inheritance. This is going to hurt my financial position, and I refuse to do that. I cannot redeem it. You can redeem it. So, the picture here is what is called the liveret law. And the liberate law is found in Deuteronomy chapter 25, where in the nation of Israel, if a brother died uh, who was married to a woman, it was the responsibility of his brother to marry that, if he was not married, to marry the, his, his brother's wife so that his name would continue to live on. Uh, it was a, it was a, there was a high value that God had on the perpetuation of a person's name. And so in Deuteronomy 25, uh, it says that the first son uh, she bears in this relationship would carry on the name of the dead brother so that his name would not be blotted out from Israel. But this is what it says. But if the man does not want to marry his brother's wife, she shall go to the elders of the town gate and say, My husband's brother refuses to carry on his brother's name in Israel. He will not fulfill the duty of a brother-in-law to me. And the elders of the town shall summon him and talk to him, try to persuade him. Hey, do the right thing here. You, wanna, you love your brother? You know, keep his name going. Uh, if he persists in saying, I do not want to marry her, his brother's widow shall go up to him in the presence of the elders, take off one of his sandals, spit in his face and say, this is what is done to the man who will now build up his brother's family line. That man's line shall be known in Israel as the family of the unsandaled. You do not want to be part of that family. Is this not, is this not, uh, I'll stay here. You don't want to be part of that family. The family of the unsandaled. That is a real shameful place to be. But it is kind of an interesting, you know, picture of how God sees a person and how God sees the name of a person, that he treasures the name. He knows your name. He wants your name to live on because your name is who you are. You know, when I think about the Gettysburg Address and Abraham Lincoln giving that particular address. Uh, there's some of those themes in there as, as that the ground is consecrated. Uh, and he says, the world will little note nor long remember what we say here, but it can never forget what they did here. And he says, it is rather for us to be here to dedicate to the great task remaining before us that from these honored dead that we here highly resolve that these dead shall not have died in vain, that this nation under God shall live and have a new birth of freedom, and that the government of the people, by the people, for the people, shall not perish from the face of the earth. The name, well, God doesn't want your name to perish from the face of the earth. And so when a brother died, it was the responsibility of his brother, if he had a brother, to do the duty to carry on, to have an inheritance for that child, to keep that name going, which is quite an amazing thing because what happens here is that that firstborn son or that son out of that new relationship carries the brother's name, not the father's name. And he gets the inheritance. He gets the property. So there's a lot of sacrifice going on for a redeemer. 
There's basically the name, his income, an inheritance. And that's why this man did not want to, to jeopardize his inheritance. Plus, she is a Moabite. And in some sense, in some sense, you might say that, that uh, Boaz was very shrewd in giving that particular information. The timing in which he brought Ruth, the Moabite, into the discussion, he kind of led him towards that because he probably sensed that this guy was a racist. And uh, you could say, well, he played the race card. Actually, he's playing a grace card because he's given this guy kind of an honorable way out. And by this point, there was no, apparently there was no, you know, spitting in the face and public shaming. And so, you know, he gets off, he, this guy, this redeemer who didn't redeem, thinks he's, he's getting, you know, he's getting away free and clear. He just dodged a big bullet. Well, but the point here is that Boaz stepped up to the plate. He was ready to sacrifice. He was able, he was willing, he didn't have to marry Ruth, but he was. And he was going to be the redeemer. He would establish Malon, her husband's name, and, and have a child, and that name would continue on. You know, when you think about marriage, you think about marriage, marriage is more than just about the happiness of a couple. It's about the glory of God. It's about displaying a sacrificial relationship of Christ who sacrifices himself for his bride. And so when we look at Ephesians chapter 5, Paul says, Submit to one another out of respect for Christ. Wives, or respect, your, honor your husbands, build them up. But he says, he says, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. For, the, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united with his wife, and the two will become one flesh. And he says this, this is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. The foundational calling in marriage is that we as believers are called to, to reveal a a living parable and a marker for a glorious relationship that God has with his church. Christ has sacrificed himself. And so there's a deep mystery here. And so it's not a relationship based on feelings. It's not based uh, on a person's negative personality. It is the stubborn, what Ruth has revealed as the hesed love. It is the stubborn, uh, no exit strategy love that uh, is, is based upon the covenant. And so we find this here, and we find that Boaz is ready to step up to play, be the man, and, and, and do this work of redemption. You know, I think about Paul. When Paul was uh, being threatened with persecution and imprisonment, when he was taking the gospel forward, and uh, he was getting all these warnings, he said this. He said, but I do not count my life of any value nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish the course of the ministry that I received from the Lord to testify the gospel. He is constrained. He is compelled. He is moving forward. And do you know who modeled this mostly to us? Is Christ. Christ, it says in Luke, said, as the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. Jesus, in other ways, he set his face like flint towards Jerusalem. He was determined. Do you know what he was thinking about? You. 
He was thinking about you and I. He was thinking about his bride. He was, he was going after the apple of his eye. He was totally fixed on completing the mission of, of that call. And so this is the God that we have, in, and Boaz reveals this resolution. But we also see a restored Naomi. Uh, when the women said to Naomi after this marriage, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. And we see that picture here. Uh, we see this pic. We see. <laughs> we see this picture here. Okay. I can't walk away, can I? Can you hear me now? No. All right. So, I'm holding. I'm holding the pulpit right here. So, what we see is, you know, when you think about redemption, there's really three words you can think about. One is redemption, and redemption deals with the purchase of something. It is to redeem, it's to pay the cost, and it's a focus on sin. It is a focus on paying the debt of sin. Uh, we think of the words atonement, covering our sin, uh, justification, which is the word that talks about that we have been declared innocent, but it costs the precious blood of Jesus. That's the word redemption. It's a focus on addressing our sin so that we can be righteous before God. The word reconciliation is a word that deals with a focus on the relationship, a restoring of a relationship by removing the offense. But so when we think of being reconciled with God, we have to think about that God wants, you know, he didn't just redeem us just so that we would just be sinless or declared innocent. He redeemed us so that we could enter into a relationship of love with him. And so that's the focus of that. But restoration deals with bringing things back to their original design. Something that's been broken, something that has been uh, destroyed, something needs to come back and to be reestablished. And so restoring, and that's what happened with Naomi. Naomi left full, she said, when she left Bethlehem, and she came back empty. But here we find that she is now restored. She is now supplied. She has now got a redeemer who stepped up to the plate, who's providing, sustaining her in her old age. She has family around her. You know, those are important things. These are physical things. Jesus didn't just come to redeem or save our souls and have these bodiless things, but he came to redeem us holistically. That's why Jesus rose bodily from the dead. He's restoring all things. His determination is to restore all things. And so this word restoration is the big word in our language uh, as we think about, about our, our relationship with Christ and about his calling to us. You know, we think about Baltimore in these last few weeks, and a lot of questions have come up with how did Baltimore get like this and how can we fix it? And a lot of times people focus on education. We, have to, we need better education because this has been an issue in our city that's created the ferment for a lot of this, or we need better government. We need more just police force. Uh, all of these particularly, we need stronger fathering and, and marriages. We need all of these things, but at the root of all of this is really the hard issues. 
It's about commitment and about love, and it's about the ethics of doing right. And, and those, are, those are spiritual things. Uh, and, you know, the church really has the, the means of grace, the power, the dynamo to engage the city like no other people because if you know that you've been pursued by a redeemer who is seeking your reconciliation, who has re- reconciled you and is restoring you and has the promise of a hope and future, you can release yourself. You know, you can, you can go forward. And so, I, you know, Isaiah, when Jesus, you know, he inaugurates his ministry, he says, you know, good news. He says, I have, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me to proclaim good news to the poor, to, to bring healing to the, to the deaf and to sight to the blind and to raise the dead and to, and to release the captives. And all these things, the gospel is holistic. It's God wants your full restoration. Uh, and it says at the end of that, they will rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated. They will renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. You know, there was an interesting example of how Israel renewed Jerusalem after captivity. Uh, the leaders actually moved into Jerusalem and they cast lots, the whole region, the whole geographic region outside of Jerusalem. They cast lots and it said 10%. Uh, it said one out of every 10 to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while the remaining nine lived to stay in their towns. And the people commended all the men who volunteered to live in Jerusalem. Interesting, isn't it? If you just, like, I would think, you know, one way to renew Baltimore, just, you know, do a you know, 10 or 20 mile radius around the city, find all the believers who are seeking to, who've been touched by God's grace to say, hey, let's get 10% of you guys and just relocate <laughs> and start living as neighbors and uh, find the houses that have been abandoned and start loving those communities and start engaging what do you think would happen? That would be pretty radical, wouldn't it? You know, we got some great homes here ready for habitation in Penn Lucy. And Penn Lucy team would love to talk to you. You know, uh, some of you already live here and you live around in the city and you're making a difference, but you know, God might be nudging you say, you know, I, I need a different experience of what I've been, where I've been living. I want to experience God at, a, at another level. And I, I would like to explore the idea of relocating in a place where I can have community and start owning the issues of a particular community in a way that, that can really make a difference in lives, to be praying and knowing my neighbors and owning the issues that they feel. We can, uh, man, God's transformative. Anyhow, that's one application. You don't do it because you feel like you have to earn you know, Christ's love, or you have to, you're not trying to be a second-class Christian. That's, none of that guilt garbage will do it. It's got to be totally driven by a compelling call by Christ out of grace. So the last thing is the respected Ruth, a respected Ruth. So here's the women. They come to Naomi after, she, after Ruth has this baby. Blessed be the Lord who has not left you without a redeemer for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is... More to you than seven sons has given birth. Seven sons. Now, that's a pretty amazing thing. When you start thinking about the culture of Israel at that time and the culture of the other nations, uh, women were really considered without, clearly without equal value to men. They were considered property. They didn't have any rights. Uh, they could be divorced at will. 
And here in this passage, this one woman is worth more than seven sons. That is a beautiful picture of God's economy. You know, the God of the scripture is affirming the value of men and women. And, in she, and he is affirming the strength of, of the character of Ruth in this passage. And this is a beautiful picture, Ruth. And when you look at the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew 1, the record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, we find this in Jesus' genealogy. Abraham, of course, and then Isaac and Jacob. And, and it says Judah, the father of Perez. And then it goes down to, you see, Boaz. And then you see Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Ruth, the Moabitess, the Ruth who grew up out of this incestuous relationship heritage, who was part of a community that had child sacrifices and caught prostitution, this Ruth became the great-great-grandmother of Jesus. And not only did Ruth, but you see Perez, and it, and it talks about Perez, and it talks about uh, Tamar. Well, Perez was the son of Tamar. Well, who was Tamar? Tamar was the daughter-in-law of Judah. And Judah had several sons, and one son was married to Tamar. Well, that son died. And so Judah gave, him, gave her the next brother, and he died. And Judah started getting cold feet. He says, I can't afford any more sons to this lady. And so he hesitated. He wouldn't let any more sons die. And so, uh, so Tamar was left, you know, pretty much abandoned in her condition. And so she dressed herself up as a prostitute at the city gate. And Judah was coming by, and he had this relationship. Judah, okay, has, he takes her as a prostitute, has a relationship. She bears Perez. Isn't that something? Right here in the genealogy of Jesus, that relationship. Now, what's all that about? That's about the grace of God, the unbelievable, amazing, mysterious grace of God. And that's about you and me, that no matter what you've done or what your background has been and how far away you think you've been from God in your life, there is redemption for you. There's a redeemer for you. There is reconciliation for you and restoration for you. You, are, you have a God who is resolute, who will come after you. He wants you to know that the, the doors are wide open. His arms are wide open for you. So this is Mother's Day, and, and the Elder Steve talked about the challenges that many of us are facing on Mother's Day. Uh, you know, many of us are grateful children with our mothers who've loved us and are still alive, and that's, that's a great thing to celebrate. But there's so many others who feel the difficult grief during this time. Some are mourning and longing for mothers who really weren't mothers for them, and they, they sense that, that ache in their own lives. Uh, maybe their mothers were incapacitated for some reason. Others are mourning because they want to be moms, but they're, because of issues they just aren't, haven't been able to. Uh, and some are grieving children because their moms have passed, and they're grateful for their moms, but they feel that longing. I think about Bill Bowling. This past year, Bill Bowling's mom uh, went to be with the Lord. But every single Mother's Day, Bill Bowling, our elder's mom, would be sitting right here in that row with her family. This is the first year she's not here. And the thing I miss is that she would always give me this big hug. 
she would just embrace me and I would just feel the love of God through her. And I know that Bill is missing her. And I know that there's others. Arlette lost her mom, went home to be with the Lord. And there's maybe others here. You know, that's really a hard, there's a hard loss, even as we rejoice of God's reunion with them. But others have actually lost children, mothers. And, and uh, this, past, this past week was a, it was a tough week. And Friday was, uh, I had the, uh, a high mountaintop rejoicing experience and one of the hardest morning experiences within one hour. So my daughter, Rebecca, gave birth at 5 p.m. on Friday afternoon uh, to our grandson, uh, Damien, uh, Damien Conrad Dortzbach. Uh, it was a wonderful thing. She'd been in labor most of the night. And, but in the next hour at 6 o'clock, we had a memorial service uh, for Nora Renee Rading, who uh, was born to Rosella and Michael Rading, uh, and she, she, she passed within the hour of her birth. And we had this, this service. And uh, for the, I, you know, that verse that says in Romans, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Those, that was what I was attempting to enter into. And it was, it was a time where, where uh, Rosella and Michael modeled for us what faith looks like in the midst of just difficult, hard loss. But many didn't know this, but at our Advent concert that we had back in November, or early December, they had just received the news that their child, that Rosella's baby, had a genetic defect and would probably not make it through the pregnancy. And she sang, and that's Rosella in the middle, she sang in faith before a congregation that didn't even know what was happening in her life. And when I watched her, I knew this, when I watched her stand there and sing uh, worship praise and sing even the lament before God, I said, man, what amazing woman of strength. She was gripping the God of grace in the midst of just the horrible, horrible news. And we watched that, and we saw that again this past Friday. And we also saw uh, Michael, who... You know, he said that they wanted a celebratory service, recognizing that God had claimed, you know, Nora Renee. And, and so I saw Michael dancing with Esther, their other daughter, uh, just before the Lord. And it was just a, a great and humbling thing to watch faith, living faith, active in such a way. The other thing I saw, by the way, was this body who came. And there was just long lines, and people just embraced and hugged uh, Rosella and Michael and the Lord. You know, that, that's a, what is that hug about? That hug is about God's hug to you. You know, the scriptures tell us to, 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 uh, to embrace each other, to, to greet each other with a holy kiss, you know. And that holy kiss is like a sacred thing that God wants you to experience his magnificent love. I don't know what your situation is today and how you are dealing with particular issues uh, with losses or griefs, but you need to know that God is in all the details of your life, that there is nothing that he doesn't capture and that he can take what appears to be a great tragedy and he will transform it into a 
tremendous victory. You see, because the, the last news is not bad news. Uh, there is a prevailing joy, and the gospel tells us that he comes after us with a force of grace and mercy. And so one application, the last application is, before you walk out of here, give someone a holy hug. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this account of Ruth and for the testimony of her life uh, and also Naomi and, and Boaz as they modeled for us uh, so many aspects of a redeemer of the gospel of grace. God, we pray that you would strengthen each person here today. I don't know all the issues that are facing them. I know there's probably different experiences of joy, but also of loss. I pray you would embrace each one with your big arms and let them know that they are loved. And we commit this service to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together.